Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here today, and happy Father's Day uh, to all of you dads out there. Did you guys like the uh, popcorn station and the root beer station out there? And, um, and I want to give kudos to our team that uh, put together our photo op out there. Did you guys get your, did you see the photo op out there? No, you didn't, so they nailed it, right? So it's, there is none. That's our gift to dads. There is no, there is no photo op out there. So you're welcome. There's actually a sign out there with some, some caution tape around it that said, our gift to fathers is there's no photo op today. So uh, anyway, you guys enjoy the popcorn, enjoy the root beer, and just have a wonderful, wonderful Father's Day. Hey, uh, we are uh, digging right into our series here of Unearth. We've been out of here for a few weeks now, and we have another week or so to go uh, before we're done. But man, we're just digging into the world of biblical archaeology. And I, I just want you to know how much I've enjoyed the many conversations over the last month I've been having with so many of you. And I'm learning from you that uh, a lot of you had never even thought about biblical archaeology before this series. And it kind of sparked something. And you're starting to tell me uh, about some of your discoveries, which is what I thought might happen. But here's what else I've learned about our church family, is that there are some actually folks in our church who have spent significant time in the Holy Land digging with archaeologists um, on archaeological sites, which is awesome. And you got some incredible stories. That's awesome right here in our church. But let me just say this. Out of our church family, I'll tell you the one conversation I'm having more than I think any other conversation with people in our church about this series, um, and I'm just gonna kind of summarize it like this. A lot of you have expressed to me things like this. Man, I wish my adult children would listen to these sermons. I've got concerns about my kids that have gone on to into adulthood, gotten married, and they are no longer going to church or following or, or care about Jesus, and I know it's a great burden to you. And if you feel that way or you've expressed that or even if you haven't expressed it to me, just know that our church has a lot of families that that's a burden, it, it, it carries. And so you, when you come to sermons like this, you'll go, man, if my son would just listen to that, I think that might be a game changer. Let me give you this word of encouragement. This is what I've been sharing with families and I think some of you need to hear this today. Here's what I'm encouraged to do. If you find yourself in that situation, first and foremost, don't ever give up on your kids. You pray for them every single day, all right? You just pray, 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 and it doesn't matter if it takes days, weeks, months, or years, as long as you have breath, you pray to God. And then the second thing is, just live to the best of your ability a holy, consistent life in front of even your adult children. They're going into stages of life, having their own children, and, and, and embracing all the things this world has, and they need to look at you and see somebody that's consistently living for Jesus, and it will matter. So you just live a holy life in front of them. Um, pray for them. As God gives you opportunity, pray for these opportunities. Lord, give me an opportunity to share with my son or my daughter or my grandchildren about uh, what it means to be a Christian. If you have an opportunity to share a sermon, share a sermon. Always seize the opportunities. But friends, if you feel that way now, you are not alone. You have a bunch of people in this church that are walking this road with you, and I think you should seek some of them out and pray, support each other in this adventure. But Lynn, let me tell you, when I put these sermons together, your children, your adult children, our high school students are very much on my mind as I'm putting this together going, man, I hope they will pay attention because if they can just know, they don't have to remember it all, but if they know that there is truth that I can see and that the Bible is true and that I can trust it, if they can walk out of here knowing that we have accomplished something and that will mean something down the road when somebody with a lot of letters behind their name says something critical about the Bible. They may not be able to defend it uh, exactly like they might remember. They say, nah, I don't believe you. And there we have made progress, wouldn't you say? I think so. 
Well, we are digging into this series. I love it, and I'm glad that some of you are loving it too. We have uh, been mainly looking at um, artifacts and discoveries that relate primarily to the Old Testament. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like for us to transition a little bit more towards the New Testament. What archeological stuff out there supports what the, the, the New Testament says happened? Specifically, what is the archeological evidence for Jesus? Is there any archeological evidence for Jesus? Is there anything they're digging up that, that points to Jesus? And I can tell you that the answer to that is a resounding yes, and we're gonna look at some of it today and, um, and before we're done completely with this series. But let me tell you why it's so important to talk about Jesus and what archeologists are finding about Jesus. It is because our entire belief system is built on Jesus. That's why. We believe that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose back to life. This all happened about 2,000 years ago, and even before Jesus came into this world, hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophets wrote about Jesus, and we believe that it's Jesus who is the fulfiller of these prophecies. Our prophets wrote about how our Savior would be born of a virgin, he'd be born in the town of Bethlehem. Remember the Isaiah scroll I showed you? That's just one of a number of prophecies about Jesus. They prophesied that he would open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, that he would heal the lame. They prophesied that he would receive the punishment for the sins we deserve. We believe that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies, but this should be of no surprise to any of us in here. There are plenty of people who don't believe that. In fact, there are more people who don't believe that than do believe that, and we've been pointing this stuff out about the critics of the Bible and about unbelievers, specifically atheists and atheist attacks on the Bible. There are plenty of people, believe it or not, in our world today that would look you in the eye and say, I don't believe that Jesus ever even existed. I believe he is a myth. Now, that statement doesn't hold water. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus actually did exist, but whenever I hear somebody say that, that Jesus didn't exist, man, that just grates all over me because I'm somebody that's banked my entire career, but more importantly than that, banked my entire salvation on the reality that Jesus is not just a man, but he was God in the flesh who died for the sins of the world, and he actually did exist. But the criticisms that people bring up raise good questions that we should ask as a church family because we should know how to answer some of these things. We should know what we believe about him. Did Jesus actually exist? Was he a real person or was he a myth? Is there any archeological evidence that supports what it is that we believe about Jesus? And I'm here to tell you the answer to that is a resounding Yes, there is a mountain of evidence that he was indeed a real person, and we're gonna explore the archeological evidence of that, but let me also say this. Besides the archeology, span you know, what they're digging up out of the ground, there is a mountain of what we would call literary evidence of Jesus' existence. In other words, what is it that people wrote about Jesus? And that alone is huge. First of all, when you talk about literary evidence, the writings about Jesus, we have, first of all, 27 books of the New Testament that talk all about his life, that talk about what he did, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all of that stuff. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we call the Gospels, are an accurate historical accounting of the life of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts on, is all about the, 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 the explosion of evangelism and the church and all the things that happened because 
of Jesus. So you have these 27 books of the Bible, which I hope you have seen and that we've talked enough about it, have been proven to be accurately copied, um, historically true, um, actual history, well-preserved. You can take it to the bank. This is what the gospels. We have literary evidence, but that's the New Testament. But you also know that we have over 30 non-biblical references to Jesus as an actual person within the first 150 years of his life. You can find these as easily as I can, but let me just tell you about one. Um, Probably one of the most significant non-biblical writers and historian about Jesus is a guy by the name of Josephus. In fact, a lot of archaeologists will have a Bible and the writings of Josephus out on their dig site so they can verify and look stuff up. But Josephus is is pretty remarkable. He wrote about Jesus. These are just some of the things that he said. He said that Jesus was a doer of amazing deeds. This is a historian. This isn't a Bible writer. Historian. Jesus was a, a doer of amazing deeds. He wrote this, that Pilate condemned Jesus to be crucified to die. These are out, these details outside the Bible. That's pretty remarkable. That he writes that Jesus was a teacher who won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. Okay? First century historian, write about Jesus. He writes this about Jesus' death. He said it's reported that he had appeared to his disciples three days after his crucifixion, and they claimed that he was alive. That's pretty remarkable. So there's a lot more literary evidence of the existence of Jesus, what was written about him, and it's very strong evidence. But we're here to explore archaeology. What archaeology, what discoveries, uh, artifacts and things are digging up, what have they found that helps validify what the Bible says specifically about Jesus? Well, to kick us off, first of all, let me say this. There's a whole lot more than what we're going to talk about today. This is just the beginning. But to start us off, I want to take you to a maximum security prison in the northern city of Israel called Megiddo, and you're like, a maximum city, a maximum security prison? That's right, that's where our travels are gonna start today. And I wanna take you back to the year 2005. Now, for most of us, thinking back about 2005, that's not that long ago, right? How many think 2005 wasn't that long ago? All right, if you ask my children, 2005 might as well be the Civil War, all right? That's how far, okay. Now, for most of us, Okay, 2005 is not that long ago. And this, this uh, prison, they needed to expand their facility. So they had an area near the prison that they needed to clear the ground. And what do you have a lot of in prisons? Able-bodied men to do work. And so they sent a bunch of their prisoners out there to this field to start clearing the land so they could build on, add on to their facility. Little did they know When they sent these guys out there to start clearing brush and land and get this site ready for construction, little did they know that these prisoners would actually stumble upon the remains of what would turn out to be the oldest Christian church ever discovered. It's fascinating. Uh, The picture behind me, you can see, you can see the prison, you know, that looks like you could break out of there pretty easily. But anyway, there's a, there's a, just observation. So here's the prison, and if you look here in the, in the foreground here, you're gonna see somebody cleaning off what turned out to be these beautiful mosaic floors, okay? Now, like with a lot of archeology, span 
the buildings are gone, okay? The walls, that's all gone. But you have foundation. What often survives is the foundation of these ancient buildings. And they found an ancient building um, that goes back to the year 230 AD. How do they know it was 230 AD? Well, there's a lot of ways they can tell. But one for this specifically is they found pottery and they found coins um, during that uh, era. They knew that this, this dates back to 230 AD. You find a coin from a specific area buried in the dirt with it, you kind of know, well, this is the same kind of time frame. So we're talking about a church building that's roughly about 200 years after Jesus. Now this is also, if you know your history, um, Christianity was you know, a persecuted religion back in 230 AD. It wouldn't be until the year 313 AD that uh, Constantine started to remove some of the penalties for being a Christian. It was a precursor to what would eventually become full legalization of Christianity. So this is long before that. This is the persecuted faith. And they found these floors. Now you're looking at floors that Christians used to walk on. They would worship in this building. They would fellowship together. They would pray together. They would study God's word together. They would take the Lord's Supper together. All on these, these floors behind me. But I'll tell you what's really remarkable. As they started to study these mosaic floors that had been buried for all these years, they saw how beautifully they were preserved, they started to see designs in the floors. Let me show you, they found this design right here. It's a design of fish, right in the floor, fish. Do you guys see them? Right there, two fish. Do you understand the significance of fish? Right now, the universal symbol of Christianity is what? It's the cross. That didn't come around until it was legalized uh, by the Romans. Before that, the symbol for Christians was fish. It was fish. Now, you can dig into this all you want, but I'm just kind of giving you a broad review. Fish, and they found in this house of worship, right there on the floor, design of fish. It's a, it's a, it's a marker, it's like a spotlight. Christians worshiped here. But, but it gets even more interesting than this. They found inscriptions in the floor, inscriptions that have survived. And there's an inscription on the floor of this church that talks about how all the floors of this church were actually paid for by a Roman army officer by the name of Gianos. His name is in the floor. Now, catch that. A Roman army officer according to the inscription, paid for these mosaic floors to be installed. They have also unearthed, as they started to excavate this area, drill near to this church, they found from the same era a Roman outpost where soldiers would have been stationed, and it's caused archaeologists to wonder. I don't think we'll ever be able to prove it, but they started to wonder, could it be possible that there's this Roman outpost of soldiers that maybe, just maybe, there was a few Christians, including this Geonos guy, who was actually worshiping with the Christians in this church. Is it possible? Do you think that the gospel has enough power to call all kinds of people to salvation? Makes you wonder. Many archaeologists think, they believe, that some of these soldiers and Christians worship side by side right here in this building and a Roman soldier became a Christian and paid for the floors. Now again, this is when Christianity was being persecuted. So is it beyond the realm of imagination to think maybe that there was enough Christians in this little Roman soldier outpost that maybe they had a little bit more lenient view towards what the Christians were doing? We'll never know. We don't know. Maybe we'll find out in heaven. But I do find it interesting that an army officer's name is inscribed in the floor that he paid for it, and it has survived all these years. Maybe it was a suicide thing. Maybe it was like, they found me out. Here's my life savings. <laughs> and he dies for supporting Christianity, and they put his name on it. 
I don't know, but isn't that interesting? But it gets even more interesting than this. They found another inscription. In fact, I've got a picture of this exact inscription behind me. Um, This was on the floor of one of those mosaics. And this tells about a woman in the church, a Christian, who donated a table to the church to be used for worship services. And um, it kind of reminds me that, wow. And her name's recorded on the floor as the person who donated this table. And Guianos was named on the floor because he donated the money for the floor. Christians have put name badges on stuff for hundreds of years. <laughs> the very first church that I ever served, um, I was a student at Ozark Christian College. I was driving every weekend. I was preaching at this church in, in Kansas. And we needed new hymnals, okay? The church had no money to buy new hymnals. So the leadership said, here's what we'll do. We'll fundraise for the hymnals, and, and they put it out to the church. You can buy a hymnal, and then we will put a, a brass name plate in the hymnal with your name on it that says donated by. And so we had a room full of hymnals. You open them up, and you had your name in the hymnal. And I'm going, those hymnals will be in those pews till Jesus comes back. Because <laughs> once you put a name on something, it will never go away, I promise you. Anybody grow up in a church like that? Lots of name badges, lots of things donated in memory of? This is one of the first examples, donated, remember, but here's what's amazing about this inscription. It names the lady who donated the table, which they found little remnants of this table as they were excavating there, and here's what's fascinating. This inscription says, donated in memory of the God, Jesus Christ. Right there on the floor, 230 AD. Donated in memory of the God, Jesus Christ. So not only does this discovery help, what I would say, reinforce the reality that Jesus actually did exist, but it underscores this foundational doctrinal belief among Christians, and that it's this, that God and Jesus are the same, that Jesus is God. There was an understanding, they put it on the floor, that God and Jesus are one. And isn't this what Jesus claimed himself in John 10, 30? He said, I and the Father are one. So there's a strong doctrinal understanding among Christians today that Jesus is God, that God and Jesus are together, part of the Trinity, that Jesus is God in humanly form. The incarnation, the Lord became flesh, right there in the floor. Jesus also, or Paul would teach this to the church in Colossians 2, 9. He says, for in the Christ, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Do you understand what he's talking about? Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there is this this doctrinal belief among Christians that God and Jesus are one. Jesus is God in bodily form. And here you have a mosaic in a church from 230 AD verifying this table, I'm, I'm donating it in memory of the God, Jesus Christ. It's pretty awesome. Well, friends, we could talk a lot more about it, but I'm just telling you, it's really hard to deny that Jesus was not real. And there are still people today that say he wasn't real, but you look at evidence like this and a lot of other evidence, but from 230 AD, these people sure thought Jesus was real. 
And they worshiped him as God. In fact, there's so much evidence for the reality that Jesus was a real person that even the scholarly uh, atheists in our world today are challenging the everyday atheists to quit saying things like Jesus never existed. Do you realize that? They're all on the same team. They don't like the Lord. They don't believe. But they are even challenging other atheists saying, don't, you gotta stop saying that Jesus wasn't real because all the evidence points to the fact that he was real. In fact, one of the most well-known critics of the Bible, um, um, uh, a guy that uh, you see him all over, he's, he's, he's doing debates and things, but he's written extensively about his criticisms of the Bible, but he says this. There is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, or any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. With respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of his life, sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue, Aramaic, that can be dated within just a year or two of his life. Historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. The claim that Jesus was simply made up, falters on every ground, written by an atheist who doesn't even believe there's a God. That's a pretty powerful statement. Basically, he said that to say, you atheists need to quit saying that Jesus didn't live because it's not true. So that's an amazing discovery, not just out of curiosity. How many of you hearing about this church from 230 AD for the very first time today? Okay, most of you. That's remarkable. That's awesome, actually. So that's just one. There's a lot of other evidence as well. They're, they're, um, they're getting ready. They've been working for years to try to turn this uh, mosaic floor, this ancient church, into a tourist site because that's what they do in the Holy Land. They find something significant, figure out how to bring visitors in, charge them money. So people, and, and I will be one of those guys one day. All right, just to let you know. They're working on trying to relocate this prison so they can do a full excavation of this whole area and see what else is there. But I guess it's not the easiest thing to do to relocate a maximum security prison. But they're working on it, and one day it will be open for the general public. But let me tell you about something else. Let me tell you about another discovery that was made that uh, it lit the um, archaeological world on fire. It's, it's an incredible discovery um, about Jesus and about, specifically about somebody who interacted with Jesus. This happened in 1990, and if you know anything about Jesus' life, specifically about his final days on earth, you're gonna read this name in the gospel accounts. The name is Caiaphas, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest who oversaw Jesus' late night trial. Caiaphas was the main mover and shaker to get Jesus arrested and to get him sent off to Pilate. In fact, this is what the Bible says about Caiaphas, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So if you re recount the details, we actually did talk about this a few weeks ago during the botch series. They arrest Jesus in the garden and, and they take Jesus to Caiaphas' house. And you might remember Peter was following in a distance and he makes his way into the courtyard of the high priest. And this is where Peter famously denied knowing Jesus three times in a row. And on the third time, Jesus looked right at him and, and he ran out crying. This is that night, this is Caiaphas' place. Jesus is on the inside and he is being accused of blasphemy. He is being hit in the face. They're bringing in false witnesses. Well, the high priest Caiaphas was the guy that orchestrated 
all of that. And then it says in Matthew 26, verse 65, then the high priest, we're talking about Caiaphas, tore his clothes and said, he, speaking of Jesus, has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. So you open up your New Testament and you read about Caiaphas, okay? You, you open up the history of Josephus that he wrote and, wrote, and you read about Caiaphas. And in 1990, they made an incredible archaeological discovery that confirmed that Caiaphas was a real person. You see, there was a construction project and they were excavating some ground and they didn't realize it, but they were on top of an ancient um, burial cave and the weight of the bulldozer crushed into this cave and opened it up and when they went down to investigate what it is, they realized they had made a pretty significant discovery and archeologists were called in and what they found is they found basically, for lack of better rooms, a room, uh, an area full of what we call today ossuary boxes. Do you know what those are? Uh, they're sometimes called just bone boxes. Now, not to be gross, but when somebody back in the first century would die, they would prepare the body and they would place them in a tomb, okay? And they would leave that body in a tomb for several years so that nature could take its course and that body would decompose to the point where they could open up the tomb, go in and collect all the bones and they would put the bones that have all been kind of decomposed, they can put them in smaller boxes and they would move these boxes to burial caves and other places where they would be you know, laid to rest permanently forever. That's why you read about how tombs could be reused over and over and over. This is how they did. They would you know, have this big tomb, put bodies in there, a couple years later, take them out. That's why you had stones that rolled away. That's a whole other thing. But um, they realized they had broken into a long-term burial cave, and they found all these bone boxes. And as they're examining these things, most of them are just ordinary, there's nothing fancy, but they came across one ossuary box in that burial cave that was very ornate. I'll show you a picture of it. This is the, this is the box behind me. And uh, you can see somebody put a lot of time into decorating this. This is no ordinary bone box. This is, this is for, you, you would come across this in an archeolog archeological dig and you pulled something like that out of a cave or a ground, you would say, somebody important is in there. Somebody up the chain, so to speak. His bones are in there. And what's remarkable is that this has been undisturbed since the first century. No tampering, no nothing. A lot of times these graveyards get, or these cemeteries get, get you know, people you know, rob them. This one was hidden all of these years. And as they got to examining this, they realized there's an inscription on the outside of this bone box that read, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Interesting. The Bible only gives us the high priest's name Caiaphas, but Josephus tells us his full name, which was Joseph Caiaphas. And here you have a box that has bones in it from the first century with the name Joseph Caiaphas decorated like that. And they have found none other than the Caiaphas who oversaw the crucifixion or the charges that come against Jesus. 2011, they found another ossuary box with Caiaphas' name on it. This one um, was, was of his granddaughter. It said Miriam, and it gives the family lineage. And this, what was really interesting about this bone box is that it names Caiaphas the priest. So now you have a box of a family member, a granddaughter of the priest Caiaphas. It's really awesome. And why is this stuff so significant? What is so important about finding 
somebody's bones. Well, first of all, it confirms the historical, that this person was historical and that he actually existed. But more than that, this box that you're looking at behind me holds the bones of a man who was about 60 years of age, who was the very man who 2,000 years ago led the charge to put Jesus on the cross. And what this box does confirms that he was a historical person confirmed by archaeology who was in the same room as Jesus, the one that looked Jesus in the eyes and said, you are a blasphemer. That is who they found in that box. And it strengthens, my friends, the historical reliability of the cross and all details about Jesus. And discoveries like this are being made on a regular basis that confirm details of the Bible. Now let me tell you about another one. If you study the last few days of Jesus' life, those last few hours, then you're certainly gonna come across the name Pilate. Pilate. Uh, Have you ever been to a passion play? Have you been to Branson to see the production of Jesus? If you have, you have heard the name Pontius Pilate. But did you know that, um, that for the longest time there was no archaeological evidence that he was ever a real person? But here's what the Bible says about him. After they got done with Jesus with Caiaphas and they tore his clothes and said, you're a blasphemer and they beat up on him a little bit, they send him to Pilate. It says in Matthew 27, 1, early in the morning... All the chief priests and the elders and the people made their plans, um, plans how to have Jesus executed because they didn't have the authority to do it themselves. They were under Roman rule. Executions came from Rome. So they needed somebody from Rome to do it. So they bound him, they bound Jesus. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, if you know the Gospels, what it says, Pilate didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Do you remember? Even his wife said, don't have anything to do with Jesus. And if you read the whole account, Pilate tried everything that he could do to get out of this predicament. He was looking for a win-win solution. He couldn't do it. So he finally washes his hands. Remember, he publicly washes his hands and he sends Jesus to be crucified. And like I was saying, for years, they had no archeological evidence that Pilate actually existed. And hopefully you're starting to see something with this series. It's a big deal when they can verify the existence of somebody that the Bible talks about. Well, they couldn't do it until 1961. Archaeologists were excavating um, in an area around Caesarea, which sits on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a beautiful place and full of archaeological history, a lot of, a lot of history there. They were uh, removing some sand and overgrowth from a Roman amphitheater that is still there today. It's a beautiful place. I've been there. In fact, I've got a picture behind me of this amphitheater. This is what it looks like today. Um, ancient, ancient amphitheater. And they were excavating around it. They were clearing sand and some overgrowth. And they made a remarkable discovery as they began to really dig into this thing. Um, You read more about uh, Caesarea in the book of Acts as it relates to the Apostle Paul. And there's a lot of history around this area with the Apostle Paul for sure. But in this theater that you're looking at behind me, they found a limestone block. And uh, what they were doing is they realized that there are parts of this theater that look like they had some pieces that were not quite original. 
And what they would learn is that back in the fourth century, there was a renovation project done on this very theater. And so they were rebuilding some stairs going up this theater. And they realized some of these blocks aren't original. So they pulled these blocks out on these stairs to start studying them because they could tell there's from a different construction project. Now, you might remember from the very first sermon in the series, I talk about secondary construction. Do you remember that conversation where maybe there was a different building or a wall that was no longer useful or got torn down, but it has good material in it, so they would take that building material and use it in another project? That's what's happening here. There were pieces that didn't fit, and they realized this material came from a different project. So they start studying it, and they pull this, lo- this block out, and they flipped it over to look at it, and they realized that there was this really well-preserved inscription on the underside of this block. So in other words, they used it from another project, they had an inscription on it, they flipped it upside down, so you're seeing the back, it's the same concept of when you spill something on your cushions, on your sofa, and you flip it over, and no one is the wiser. That's what this is, so this inscription got flipped over, and there it sat in the darkness for over 1,600 years, perfectly preserved from the elements, and they pulled it out, and guess what the inscription said? Building in honor of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah. So this stone that you're looking at behind me, I actually took this picture when I was there. This is a replica. The real stone is in a museum, obviously, but they've got a few replicas built around, and this is at that theater, and that is the inscription they found. This was face down in this remodel project from the fourth century, and um, they believe that this stone originally was in a temple several hundred years earlier that had been dedicated Tiberius, and Pilate had his name on there. It's kind of like, I did this for you, Tiberius. It's me, I did it. Pilate was kind of known as a ladder climber. It's remarkable. Just like with the ossuary box of Caiaphas, this stone verifies that Pontius Pilate was a real historical person who was connected to Jesus personally. He spoke with Jesus. He asked Jesus questions. And that conversation with Jesus left him quite conflicted. It says in Mark chapter 15, verse two, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He asked Jesus directly. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. This guy whose name is on that block is having this interaction with Jesus. You go to Luke chapter 23, verse 22. Um, Pilate comes out, can't find any reason to crucify Jesus, and he says, for the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. It was that Pilate who couldn't figure out what to do with Jesus, so he surrendered him to the will of the people and ordered that he be crucified. That's the name on the stone they found 
in that theater. And just like with Caiaphas' bones, finding the name Pilate written somewhere, inscribed somewhere, strengthens the historical reliability of the cross. In other words, what the Bible says, what the New Testament claims about Jesus and these people and what happened, it adds a lot of strength to that testimony. You know, one of the most remarkable aspects of Jesus' life is how he died. And you read the New Testament, it gives us a play-by-play of his final week and of his final day and even his final hours culminating with his death by crucifixion. I don't know if you've ever looked into crucifixion very much, but let me just tell you, it's a terrible way to die and people have been doing it for hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Darius the Great crucified a lot of people. Alexander the Great um, uh, crucified 2,000 people on the beaches after a battle. Um, Josephus tells us that the Romans crucified thousands of people. It's a terrible way to die. Josephus, who again is that first century historian, he writes this. He mentions Jesus' crucifixion in his writings. He writes this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. Remember, he's a historian. He's reporting stuff. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. The Bible tells us that Jesus was nailed to the cross. How do we know he was nailed to the cross? Well, you might remember, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And you remember on this one occasion, all the disciples were there, but Thomas wasn't there? And the disciples were like, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is like, I don't believe you. Unless I, do you remember what he said? See the nail marks. Well, let's look at it. John 20, verse 25, the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, unless I can actually see where they crucified him, I won't believe it. You know, critics for years have taken a look at the crucifixion of Jesus and they've questioned whether Jesus was actually nailed to a cross or not. They say that they have more evidence about how Romans just would tie people to crosses and trees with ropes, and the reality that iron was very expensive. Nails, they say, no, they wouldn't have used nails. They're just too expensive. And besides, nails would never support a body. And the argument for years is if you put nails through somebody's feet and their hands, It just won't support them at all. And so critics have questioned whether Jesus was actually nailed to a cross. And once again, critics got proven wrong when a construction crew accidentally discovered an ancient Jewish seminary, and I thought, or a cemetery. And I'm thinking, how exciting would it be to be on a construction crew in Israel? I mean, just think about it. You never know. You're going to go to work. We're going to build a road. Or we may make one of the most significant discoveries in the history of mankind. We don't know. You never know what your day is going to. So in Israel, you have to have an archaeologist with your construction crews just in case they find. Well, a construction crew accidentally opened up a first century cemetery that had more of these ossuary boxes in it. And as they began to study the bones in these ossuary boxes, they realized that these men had all died around 70 AD, most likely because of the Jewish revolt of 70 AD, which you can look that up in history anytime you want. But they found the skeleton remains of these guys um, who died that time. And one of the guys, they determined, 
had died by crucifixion. How do they know that he died by crucifixion? Because when they looked at his bones, they found, I got a picture of it, an iron spike through his heel. And there you can see it. This is from the first century, around 70 AD. And you can clearly see it, can't you? You can see the head of the spike. It's an iron spike right through the heel of this man. And then you can see the tip of the spike is bent. Can you guys see that? It's bent. And this was a remarkable discovery. What most likely happened is that when they crucified this guy and they nailed his foot, his heel, to the cross, when they went to remove it, and this is what we've learned, you know, we've learned that yeah, iron was expensive, and so they would reuse the nails. So they, you know, you ever pull a nail out and reuse it for something else? These huge spikes, they would just pull them out and they would, you know, get rid of the body and they would use the same spikes for the next guy. Well, obviously, when they pounded this spike in, which I can't even imagine. Can you imagine having that driven through your heel? Evidently, when they were pounding that in there, that, that spike hit a knot or a hard piece of the wood and it bent. So when the guy died and they're trying to remove the spike, they couldn't do it. And so they're like, eh, just bury him with the spike. And here we are, 2,000 years later, looking at solid evidence that indeed Romans crucified people in Israel in the first century with nails just like the Bible says. And I've read some of the forensic studies they've done on, on this guy's body, and I don't know how they figure this out, but just through the skeletal remains, they could determine that he was crucified with arms apart, hung from some horizontal beam or perhaps a branch of a tree. That's remarkable. There's a lot more I could say about that discovery. There's a whole lot more I could share with you about those mosaic floors they found from 230 AD. I could give you a few more details about Caiaphas' bones that they found in that ossuary box, and I could tell you a little bit more about the discovery in that Roman theater that had Pontius Pilate's name on it, but the real question is, what does all of this mean for us today? That's for me, that's the heart of the question. Well, it means this, friends. It means that these discoveries support the New Testament counts about Jesus, okay? And that's a huge detail, that these discoveries and many more support the historical accounts about Jesus. I mean, we're finding the bones of the guy that charged Jesus with blasphemy, and we're looking at the name inscribed on a block of the guy that sentenced Jesus to die, we're looking at evidence of a bone with a spike through his heel, obviously crucified. Jesus would have had something very similar done to him. We're talking about a church where people worshiped the God Jesus Christ. It supports the New Testament accounts about Jesus, and honestly, it gives us even more reason to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is absolutely true. But I'll share this with you again. You're gonna get tired of me saying it but I'm gonna keep saying it. We have archeological evidence that backs up the claims of the Bible. At the very minimum, comes alongside of the New Testament and gives supporting evidence. But what it comes down to is this. What is it that you believe? At the heart of the matter, the crux of it all, what is it that you 
personally believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he is the God, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he lived, died, and rose again? Do you believe that he was crucified on a cross, laid in a tomb three days later, and rose back to life? What is it that you believe? Well, I can give you a lot of evidence, but you have to decide what it is that you believe. And what do you believe is what really matters. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, I thank you as always for your holy word. I thank you for this evidence that comes alongside the Bible and reminds us that our faith is grounded in truth that we can see. And so Lord, I pray that you help us. Lord, help us to know firmly what it is that we believe. And Lord, I pray for anybody in our church family today that's still not sure what they believe. Oh Lord, I just pray you use your holy word to help bring us under conviction by your Holy Spirit. That we would hear that, that still small voice that says, I love you. Look what I did for you. I'm showing myself to you in all kinds of different ways. Come follow me. Believe in me. What do you've got to lose to believe in me? Lord, I pray for anybody in this room that's still just struggling through that whole journey. And I pray, God, this would be one step in that journey. I pray, Lord, that you use these things to help point and guide and show what it is you'd have us to believe. So, Lord, we honor you today. We lift up your name here in Bella Vista, Arkansas. Lord, let it be known that there is still one place in this world that honors you, that believes in you, and trusts what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.